Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we're going to have a great episode with Russ Jacoby. But before we get to that, I want to make sure you guys know about the 30-day free trial through GoHunt.com. It's the free 30-day trial exclusive for the J. Scott podcast listeners. All you have to do is go to GoHunt.com forward slash J. Scott and click on the blue free trial button and go through the steps. It only takes a couple minutes. So you've been hearing all about the Go Hunt Insider. And for those of you that have not signed up, GoHunt.com has an insider membership service where you can go on their filtering 2.0 and you can look at the western states and you can filter through uh, draw odds, harvest statistics, uh, and, and find hidden gems, find hunts that you didn't know about research who's putting in for what and you've been hearing all the buzz this is your chance to get a 30-day free trial you will be required to give your credit card but they will not be charged until after the free 30 days you can cancel at any time within the first 30 days to be prevent being charged if you have any questions at all you can email free trial at gohunt.com and someone from the Go Hunt team will promptly respond. But this is a great opportunity to go check out and have full access to the strategy articles uh, as far as application strategies uh, and the full access to the Go Hunt Insider. You can go check out what all the buzz is about. So do that. Um, also, guys, I want to thank you guys for your support for all the emails, all the positive uh, uh text messages I get, Instagram messages, Facebook messages. Uh, you guys are awesome. I have a really strong uh, core support uh, with all the listeners out there. And I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for uh, loyally tuning in and uh, you know just uh, soaking up all this content. And I get so many great questions, follow-up questions. And it's really nice to have you guys engaged, and I just want you guys to know I appreciate you. I also want to thank all of the sponsors. Obviously, GoHunt.com Insider is my title sponsor. Uh, I want to thank Wilderness Athlete, Western Hunter and Elk Hunter Magazines, PhoneScope, Utah Hydrographics, and The Outdoorsman's. Uh, you guys can use the J. Scott promo code. Uh, and get great discounts with these companies, so make sure you take advantage of that. Guys, hunting season is right around the corner. Uh, hopefully you're preparing, you're shooting your bows, shooting your guns, and getting your calls all tuned up, and uh, working out, get, getting your body in, in, in tip-top shape. And um, I just uh, really want to encourage you to give it your best for this fall 2016 season. also want to make you aware... Uh, the jscottoutdoors.com website uh, is, is a brand new website, and it's kind of the central hub. You can go to the podcast from there. You can link to Instagram. You can link to my YouTube channel. Uh, also, uh, my Facebook page, my personal Facebook page, uh, hit the 5,000 uh, personal uh, uh, friends and uh, so I can't add any more friends there. So we've re-energized the J. Scott Outdoors business page. 
uh, and it's just been cranking along. I want to really appreciate uh, or let you guys know that I appreciate all your support uh, with all of my media outlets. And if you haven't checked it out, go on J. Scott Outdoors uh, and give it a like. Uh, I believe we added 5,000 likes uh, last week. Uh, there's some great elk videos, and we're going to continue to put out some great content uh out there on my uh, J. Scott Outdoors uh, Facebook page. So let's get right to this episode with Russ Jacoby. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we've got good friend of the podcast and of mine, uh, Russ Jacoby of Mossback, Arizona, formerly Chad's Guide Service. Russ is known for uh, being the the go-to guy for buffalo on the Kayabab Plateau, and we've had a had him on several podcast episodes here and told us a great story about the first uh, air rifle and the Lewis and Clark air rifle and how all that went down and got a lot of great feedback from that. And it's always great to have you. Russ, how you doing? Doing really well, Jay. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, we're um, here mid-June and um, kind of wanting to get an update on the buffalo season how things are going up there on the kayabab plateau in northern arizona uh things are going really well we've uh taken a lot of really nice bulls this year and uh it's not as wet as it had been last spring and so that's certainly helping us this year so from a function of being able to get in and hunt is better or the animals are off the park and more on the national forest well, the, the hunt right now is a six-month hunt. And in the early season, access this year was actually a little more difficult than it had been for the last couple of years. It wasn't necessarily the depth of the snow as much as the type of snow. And uh, it was a real fine powder. And it was really difficult to try to get through it. It was difficult to snowshoe in. It just didn't want to pack down very well. So there were some challenges with that. It also created a barrier for the buffalo to come off the Grand Canyon Park onto the forest. So the the early season wasn't as good as it normally is but as that snow melted out and uh we got into the more springtime and summer conditions uh the buffalo have been available off of the park not every day but enough that the hunters have been being successful that's great and with the six month season structure uh russ how do you see the pressure on those buffalo, I mean, is it one of those things at the beginning of the season, they get a lot of pressure, and then as the season progresses, you see less and less people, or how does it usually work? Well, the buffalo definitely respond negatively to hunting pressure, as do most animals, but it's not necessarily later in the season as much as it is on any given day how the hunters are behaving. Um, when hunter behavior is sneaky, if I can use that word, um, we're more successful on the buffalo. When hunter behavior is, I will use the word lazy, where they're driving around in their trucks and things like that, um, predictably the bison don't come off the park as much. So in other words, if they sense the human traffic, they're not going to come off. If if guys walk in a little bit more and be a little more stealthy, the, the buffalo tend to drop their guard a little bit and wander a little bit more than, than uh, they would if, if you were driving all over the place. Absolutely. You know, they're always on guard, but it's a lot harder for them to know you're there if you're not making a lot of noise. <laughs> yeah. And is it one of those things, um, you know, the way it works, if you get one hunter that's quote unquote lazy and, and um, you know, driving all over the, the world, does, does that one person usually end up ruining it for most of the other hunters? Absolutely. 
that's why it's so important and why we work so hard to try to mentor and help the other hunters understand um, maybe the best approach or the most successful approach. You know, it's a lot of blind hunting that a lot of hunters aren't fond of or are used to doing in Arizona. Um, there are times we can spot and stock them, but it has to be a very special circumstance for that to work. So there's some hunters that are a little selfish and they want to roam around and it's certainly legal. They're allowed to do that. But if they stay in a small area, that's okay. But when they start doing it on the entire area, it messes it up for almost everyone. How, what is, what kind of impact? I know um, there's a spring turkey season up there with a bunch of tags. What kind of impact do the turkey hunters have on the buffalo not knowing that, uh, you know, they're, they're hunting turkey, but what kind of impact do they have? Well, any hunter that, that's up there can have an impact no matter what they're choosing to hunt. Most of the turkey hunters are, are pretty understanding. When we bump into them, we try to be nice to them and, and explain, hey, there's a buffalo hunt going on. Did you know that? Most, most hunters don't. And we keep track of where bird roosts are at and where concentrations or turkeys are at. If the hunters are willing to, to give us a little bit of space, we're very eager to share spots where there's a lot of birds that give us a little bit more room to work with for the buffalo hunters. And most of the turkey hunters are pretty good about switching to those other spots. So, you know, it's a cooperative effort to try to help everyone to be successful. Absolutely. Um, how many buffalo do you anticipate killing with, with hunters this year? Uh, say for, I don't know how you break up your seasons, whether you just do by the year or if you do from say, you know, spring to spring or however you break it up for an annual, what would you say, you know, how many buffalo do you think you'll be involved with this year? So we've been averaging around 50 that, that we're personally responsible for. Um, in addition to those 50, there's probably another dozen or more that that we're heavily involved in helping or educating the hunters or or sharing locations, and then they're successful. Um, there are some hunters that do it on their own, but there aren't that many that do it on their own. The, the hope is that we can kill 100 or more. And with good weather and good hunter participation, um, you know, it's a lofty goal, but we hope to get there. And we need to get there to try to help manage the herd numbers. Russ, uh, shifting gears a little bit, um, I, I understand that uh, you and Chad are now part of what's called Mossback, Arizona. Can you speak a little bit to that? Absolutely. So uh, my friend Chad Woodruff and I have been guiding together for a while, and uh, that's been working out really well. Chad's known for the, the large deer on the strip that, that he loves to pursue and has a lot of passion for. Um, I'm known mainly for doing the bison on the Kaibab. In addition to those types of hunts for each of us, um, we just love to, to pursue the other animals in Arizona as well. So we do a lot of sheep, elk, and antelope hunts um, outside of those other seasons. Most people that know how many hunts we do are shocked to find out how many hunts we actually do outside of the ones that we're maybe more, more known for. And you know, with Chad being so involved in what's going on in the Strip, he obviously is, is doing a lot of hunts with Mossback. And it was just a natural progression of, of that partnership coming to the point that it has now where um, Chad is officially the, the main contact for, for Arizona for Mossback. And that's, uh, it's been good for us. It's a lot of publicity. Uh, it gets our name out there a little bit more. I don't know that it'll change that much what we were already doing on the strip for the deer or on the Kaibab um, for the bison and the deer up there. But it certainly is going to help get our name out there and get us more publicity and, and 
more widely known um, for a lot of the other hunts that we do that, that most people don't know that we do. Yeah, I remember meeting you and Kelly Gibson um, the first year that we were doing the raffle tag for sheep. Uh, I believe it was 2011, the fall of 2011, and I uh, met you there in 15D. Kelly had drawn a tag, and you had the tag, the, I believe, the year before, if not two years before. And um, we immediately hit it off, uh, you, me, and Kelly, and um, we've shared some great experiences since then. Um, one of the things that I have always uh, admired you for, one of many things, is um, how tech savvy you are and how good you are with, um, at the time, um, it was using, the, I believe, Topo program to take your GPS and download all of your waypoints and travel routes, um, et cetera, um, onto a map. And uh, you were instrumental in helping me with the, um, with, you know, showing me how to do that. And, and it has proven to be very effective. And um, you were the first person to show me that you could actually, you know, plot your route up to an area without having been there and then, you know, go in with the flashlight and follow the route. And sometimes in sheep country, and a lot of times in sheep country, you've got bluffs and, you know, you can see a lot of that on uh, the topo map. Um, but then, of course, you know, a lot of times your path or route has to take a little bit of a, uh, a jog here or there, but it's it's nice to be able to um, you know, plot your way in and plot your way out and then, you know, be able to put it on a map once you get back and look at it on your computer or your iPad. And um, where I'm going with this is what um, software, what topo programs, you know, what are you using Google Earth? Um, you know, what what are you using these days and um, how have you found it to be better or worse than what you used prior? Okay. Uh, first of all, I appreciate the compliments, Jay. And, and I look fondly back at those memories that we made in 2011 on those hunts. There was a, there's a lot of hunts that were fun that year and, and a lot of hunts since. And, you know, my formal training as an engineer, uh, the tech savvy type stuff just comes naturally for me. But I, um, I try to look at all available resources. I don't just single in on one and just use that one. So, you know, we've come a long way in a few short years um, since what was available back then. Um, I hesitate to share it because um, it's kind of a little trade secret, but for your listeners, Jay, I will share it. Um, I think a lot of people use Google Earth because they know what it is and it's just out there and available for them. And then there's other hunters that, they have their favorite software or geo program that they use that it's either on their phone or on their laptop or some type of a pad computer or something like that. And um, this little secret that I'm going to share kind of marries those two worlds. And uh, it's actually a website. And if I can share that, it's www.hillmap.com. And I'm kind of sad that I just shared that publicly, Jay, but um, I do think <laughs> uh, it's going to benefit your listeners. So um, what I like about Hillmap is it's a split screen and I've actually got it up in front of me right now. And yeah, what I'm I have pulling it up as well. 
on the right side of the screen is I have basically Google Earth. So you're looking at a satellite image of, uh, of an area. And on the left side of the screen, I have a map. And what's really cool about it is there's a drop down menu and you can go in and you can pick a bunch of different kinds of maps. And as you scroll through and play with it, what you're going to find is some of these maps are going to look like the topo software that you're familiar with that we've used for a long time. There's also other maps in there that are um, other types of topo maps and other types of data that's available. But what's really cool about it is sometimes on Google Maps, it's really hard to tell exactly where you're at. And with the topo map on one side, you're going to get street names and all kinds of things like that. So when you zoom in, you can maybe be a little easier to orient on the left half of the screen. And then on the right half of the screen, you're going to see a satellite image of that. Yeah, um, you know, you turned me on to this about a year ago, and I, I really like it. Which map do you tend to find uh, as far as topo map? Which one do you like the best? Well, the one that I use the most is National Geographic Topo. And unfortunately, they're no longer manufacturing or supporting it just because of the sheer number of the competitive maps out there. It's just not fiscally um, beneficial for them to keep doing that. But I still have my original software and I'm still using it. It works great for me. Um, as the GPS units improve and change, you know, there's a lot of apps that different people are using. And I, I've tried a bunch of different apps that, um, that some of my hunters are really fond of. Um, but I find myself keep going back to Topo just because I'm so familiar and used to it. And the places we hunt, we've hunted there for so long, have so much data already that way. It's just easier for me to keep with that. And I, I guess my question was on hillmap.com, when you've got your satellite imagery, you're basically your Google Earth on the right. And then on the left side of your screen, you use, you know, you have the choice of map, satellite, CalTOPO, CalTOPO FS, ArcGIS, et cetera. Which one of those maps do you use uh, the most? Uh, I wouldn't say I use one the most. Um, I, uh, as you know, am a little obsessive compulsive. And when I mess with maps, I don't just stick with one. I, I literally have to look at like every available data source and, and see if there's something I can pick up or learn. Um, from all of them. And so I don't know that there's, there's one that I use more than another. Um, there, there's a bunch of good ones out there on there and you just got to kind of play with it for the area that you're interested in. And as you do that, I think you'll, you'll kind of gravitate towards one or another depending on the area that you're in. And Russ, um, I know you've showed me this before. Um, up at the top, it says hill map, tour, points, paths, overlays. Where do you click to get the actual plus sign in the center of the screen so it like has, has a middle ground? Which one of those do you click? So, you know, it's an intuitive program. If people get in there and they'll just play with it, what they're going to do is they'll, they'll find out what the, the different buttons do. Um, what I recommend is just pulling it up and, and play with it. You know, start with... Uh, an area that you're already familiar with, pull up satellite on one side and pull up, you know, a couple different maps on the other side. You know, some of the maps are going to have really good road numbers and other maps will have uh, really good topo lines. And so as you play around with those different options, 
you'll probably find things that are, are beneficial to you. Um, as you play with those tabs on the top of the screen, it lets you print under the wrench tab. Um, you can import and export GPX files, which we can talk about a little bit. Um, the tab with the wheel lets you change the type of coordinates you've got and some of your elevation units. And um, there's a blog and uh, kind of a, a tutorial that's available. You can actually do overlays. You can do paths, which lets you do a route you can export and pull into your GPS. And you can do waypoints. Um, now, can you save this and come back at a later time and it be there? Or is this just as long as it's open on your computer? In my experience, it works better when you have the internet. And um, you can make data files, but you do need to save them. Um, you know, it's a website. So when you close it, that's going to go away. It's not going to remember when you come back. But you can export your data as a GPX file. I mainly use this software to scout from my office, if you will. Um, if you're going to an area you haven't been to before, or if I'm looking for tanks in a new area, or even an area I've been a lot, a lot of times in the field, animals are doing something that doesn't quite make sense. You know there's something over there, but you can't quite figure out what it is. You get on those satellite images and zoom in. With the topo on one side, you can see where you were at. And on the other side, you can zoom in and you can look at some pretty nasty country and see is there water or likely places where there could be water in there. And you know, in Arizona, water's a big deal and it helps you kind of understand that lay of the land. Um, natural roads and travel corridors are gonna show up on the satellite images. And you know, it's a useful tool, it really is. It's helped me find um, some popular areas that we hunt and uh, being able to have the topo maps there. I think you and I both have gotten calls from a certain somebody, we won't say who, that's trying to get off a cliff in sheep country <laughs> and he'll call us and go, guys, I'm cliffed out. I can't get off the cliff. And I, hold on a minute. I pull up my laptop and I'm like, go 30 feet northwest. There's a rock there and look off. And he looks off and he goes, yeah, I don't think so. And I'm like, well, it's a 10 foot drop. But trust me, once you get below that, you're good to go. Um, and, you know, you can do things like that if you, if you have this tool. Yeah. And, um you know, I, I think it's um, another program that I don't know if you've used or, or uh, website is acmemapper.com. And um, the thing I like about it is you can switch from topo back to aerial, back to topo and what have you. Um, the one thing that Hillmap uh, is a little bit better in, in my opinion in that regard is with the crosshairs in the center of your screen, you can be looking at the topo on the left side of the screen and immediately um, look over on the aerial image and have them both in front of you at the same time, which also allows you to zoom in and zoom out without having to switch screens. And I, I think that's one thing that, uh, you know, Hillmap has over Acme Mapper is you don't have to actually go back and forth where sometimes in Acme Mapper, depending on what scale you're on, uh, when you switch from aerial back to topo or topo back to aerial, um, you lose your center or lose the exact spot that you were looking at. Um, 
So I think that's definitely an advantage here on hillmap.com. Um, Let's take a quick break here and um, we'll get back into it. Guys, I've known the owners of the Outdoorsman's for over 20 years. And the thing that I like most about the Outdoorsman's is they are hunters and they create all of their products with hunters in mind. I, I think they are the absolute authority on optics. If you call down there and talk to anyone at the Outdoorsman's and, and talk about tripods, talk about glassing, talk about optics, spotting scopes, rifle scopes, uh, backpacks, uh, you name it, they're hunters so they can talk to you one-on-one uh, -on -one and give you first-hand experience on how to use the Outdoorsman's products. I strongly suggest uh, you give them a call at one 800 291 8065 or go to their website at outdoorsmans.com they've got a really cool website uh, it shows a bunch of their products the optics the packs uh, the tripods the bino accessories uh, and they carry the greatest line of optics uh, uh, that's available on the market so make sure you use the j scott promo code when you call and you'll get 10 percent off on all products and I want to thank the Outdoorsmans for their support. Do you feel like you just let the baby out of the crib? Uh, maybe a little bit, but that's all right. <laughs> um, all right, Russ, let's um, tell me about one of the things that I always have a challenge with is, uh, you know, downloading uh, you know, doing a bunch of work, marking a bunch of points and then downloading uh, those coordinates onto my GPS and importing them as a GPX. Uh, can you tell me a little bit how to do that either in Hillmap and Google Earth? Because I have extensive Google Earth. Um, like when we get a ranch in Mexico that we're going to coos deer hunt, I, the first thing I do is go on Google Earth. I outline all the roads, all the tanks, all the glassing points, I try and find the fences, you know, put the outlines of the ranch. Um, and then I have not grasped the concept in Google Earth how to then take all of those points and put them into my GPS or onto my phone, uh, either using, um, you know, like Onyx Maps or uh, using Trimble Outdoors. So can you tell me me and the listeners a little bit how you do that sure so there is so many different types of gps's and softwares and apps and it seems like there's dozens of popular file types and so you know from a very basic fundamental kind of understanding um if you go into a certain software package it's going to export its data into a file type that it likes. You know, if you're if we take a an analogy to kind of make it easier for people to understand, if you use Microsoft Word, everyone knows that the file type is a dot, doc, dot doc, and it's a document type file type. Well, you don't have to use Microsoft Word. You can use other um, software packages that are word processors, and a lot of your better word processors can take a doc file type and convert it into the file type that they use whether that's a uh, Apple-based product or some of the freeware that's available online or something like that. 
And the same thing applies in mapping software. So if you just Google, you know, mapping file types or, you know, GPS file types, you, there's huge lists of all the different files. Some common ones would be GPX or KMLs or some of those other types of files that, um, that to most of the novice users, they don't care what the file type is. They just want their two software packages to talk to each other. And that's where I think most people struggle. It's kind of like one software speaks English and another software speaks Spanish and you need a converter to convert those. So I'm gonna share a converter that I think will help a lot of listeners. And one of the popular converters is GPS Babel. It's gpsbabel.org. Um, it's a free software and it'll pretty much convert any file type A into file type B. So if you're in this software, and it's a GPX file, you can convert it into a different file type that your other favorite software package can read and understand. So, you know, GPS data isn't really that complicated. It's just a list of numbers and it just converts it in from one language to another so the two different software packages can talk to each other. So if you're in Google Earth and you want to mark up a map and export it, when you go to save it, it's gonna save it as a certain file type. If you wanna put that into your GPS, the software you use to do that may not recognize that file type. This software will let you convert it so that your, your software that you use to load in your GPS can recognize it. It's pretty impossible to give a set of instructions on how to do it because in each circumstance it's different depending on which two software packages they wanna go between. The nice thing about the internet, if you, if you Google, I've got this GPS and this software, how do I convert the file? You're going to find a forum and someone's going to have instructions on how to do it. And it's about as simple as baking cookies. If you just follow the recipe, you can convert one file type to another. Utah Hydrographics is in the water transfer printing service, and they are open to whatever you can dream up. Choose from a wide range of camel patterns, designs, and colors. Whether it's guns, bows, tools, rifle stocks, vehicles, steering wheels, fenders, dashboards, paint guns, fishing rods, cups, tripods, watches, knife grips, helmets for a local sports team or for your motorcycle, picture frames, mailbox, animal skulls, you name it, they can probably do it. Utah Hydrographics loves taking things that are general looking and turns them into something that looks fantastic and eye-popping. Give them a call and see what they can do for you and receive up to a 10% discount by using the J. Scott 16 promo code. Visit them at utahhydrographics.com or on Instagram at utahhydrographics. Whether you are interested in elk, deer, antelope, bighorn sheep, or moose, Western Hunter and Elk Hunter magazines will bring the adventure to your mailbox. These publications feature articles on the finest hunting gear, tips and tactics from experienced hunters, field judging trophies, glassing techniques, calling strategies, and much more. To become a more knowledgeable and skilled hunter, subscribe today. Go to westernhunter.net forward slash jscott and enter your email address for a chance to win a $1,500 credit towards any Swarovski product. You said the magic word cookies. I can eat cookies. <laughs> about baking them. <laughs> well, that's one thing I can tell you. For those that are baking challenged, find somebody that's more knowledgeable you and get them to bake them for you. So, you know, how many files have I ever sent you that I've said, Russ, I've got all these files. Please make sense of them and figure out how to put them in my GPS. And you're just like, 
just send me the file. <laughs> yeah. And you know, th there's a lot of people that they're really good at that skill set. So make friends with somebody like that. Um, if you go online, <laughs> it's a little intimidating at first, but if you just do a little bit of search, go into some of the forums and read up about it. Um, even if you're a novice, if you go in there and you're polite, there's experts in there that'll help you. You can tell them, Hey, I need to do this. How do I do it? And look, there's someone on there that'll, that'll explain how to do it for your specific circumstance. You know, I would offer to do it, but, um, with the number of listeners <laughs> you have, Jay, there's no way I can keep up with it. <laughs> oh, that's funny stuff right there. Um, Russ, what are you using in the field? Um, you know, I know a lot of people have started using software on their phone, different apps on their phone and, and, you know, GPS somewhat, I don't want to say are non-existent, but there's a lot of people now using their phone. I, over the last year, I've used Onyx uh, Maps and I've used uh, Trimble Outdoors both. I believe Trimble Outdoors, um, I, I sent someone to it the other day and they said they're no longer um, doing any, any more new signups for Trimble Outdoors. So I, I'm not exactly sure if it, that means that the existing software that I have on my phone or the existing app is, is going to continue to work because I'm already in or if it's um you know gonna go away but i found it to be pretty effective um up on the strip i used it on parker's hunt quite a bit and the nice thing is you can save your i guess it's cash uh cash your maps ahead of time when you don't when you're not in an area where you have um internet and um the maps still work and you can track your location uh and uh it's it's a pretty smooth uh app i'm curious what you're using well i'm probably uh an anomaly a little bit in what some folks are using um a lot of the places i hunt the cell signal is so bad that uh although a lot of the phones have a gps in it it's still not as good as, as my handheld gps that that i use every day um so what i do the most is i have actual topo maps that i've made custom maps and they're loaded into my phone as a PDF, and I pull those up. So within that PDF, I have every place I hunt, a, an amazing map set. And it's not just one map. I have the Forest Service map. I have the waterhole maps. I have the aerial photographs. I have um, satellite images all overlaid, and I can overlay those images on top of each other. Um, but that's pretty technically intense to do it that way, but that's how I do it. Um, but doesn't but that doesn't allow you to it's not using the GPS in your phone to show you exactly where you're at though is it some um, some apps will let you do that you can load custom map sets the areas that I'm at I know them so well I don't need the little dot traveling on the screen telling me where I'm at I already know where I'm at um, in fact I don't even really need the maps I've memorized them but what I do is I use it to show my hunter so we get it to point a and we're taking a break because they're winded and they're like, where are we going? And I'll pull the map set up and I'll show them. And I can show them a topo map. Some people can read a topo map. Some people can't. I can pull up an aerial image and show them. Um, I can pull up other types of maps like waterhole maps. And it has the layout of the waterhole maps. Um, I have some maps that are just the main forest service roads. Then I have other maps that show the individual like two track trails. And then have other maps where I've got like all the kill sites where we've killed in the past and I can overlay those maps. And so for me, trying to provide a quality experience for my client, it, it's nice to be able to have all those different layers. 
And I still use my regular handheld GPS and the map custom map set that I've loaded in there um, for most of my mapping. I am seeing more and more hunters um, with a little pad computer in the field that they have their favorite app loaded up. And, you know, there might be reasons why this one's better than the next, but generally speaking, it's what someone's more comfortable with. And it gives them a nice big screen. It's got the maps loaded on there and it lets them have that big screen GPS with a touch screen. Um, what I see coming is the days of a handhold standalone GPS are kind of coming to an end. The touch screen interface and the larger screens are super popular with the hunters, but it lets you do other things. For the blind hunters, they can watch movies on that same device, and they can also use it to look at trail camera pictures and videos and all the other things that hunters love to do. For sure. That made me think about... Um these battery pack um, in the field, you know, solar battery pack type things. Well, there's, there's two types of, there's, there's battery power that, you know, gets you the extra power. And then there's solar battery, like I think goal zero, I think dark energy. Um, I have not used either one of them. I'm wondering if, do you use anything out there um, that, that automatically charges your uh, devices? Have you gotten into that? So we have several different technologies that we use. Um, you know, Mophie and others have the battery packs that you can use to recharge devices. And we've been using those for a number of years. Um, we do have solar chargers that we use as well. There's a bunch of good brands out there. And the prices of those units are coming down and the durability is going up. And those are both really good technologies. You know, the nice thing about a battery pack, or, you know, you're going on a couple day trip. You know, you're going to run out partway through the trip. That lets you charge back up again. Um, the solar channels are nice solar chargers for an extended trip because you can just keep going and going and going and going. Um, they do require you, you know, to be stationary in the sunlight at some point um, to gather that, that available energy. Um, there's some now that you can put on the outside of your pack and they're gathering energy while you're traveling around, but they're not going to be as efficient as setting something up somewhere and leaving it. One so of the if other you're glassing, if you're glassing, um, you can, let's say you're, Let's say you're iPhone. You're an iPhone user, aren't you? I'm a uh, Samsung guy. Okay, Samsung. But let's say you have 50% battery, and let's say you're going to glass for an hour, and you put your solar charger on. I mean, does it take it from 50 to 75? Does it take it from 50 to 100, or does it just barely trickle you up and get you to you know 55? It's all about surface area. So the bigger your solar panel. And the more sunlight you have, the faster it's going to charge. A lot of these devices have a battery or a capacitor attached to it, and that can store energy until you plug in to use it. Um, so, you know, it's going to vary a lot depending on the conditions. But you can certainly charge your phone if you're in a sheep country and it's a sunny day. You can charge your phone while you're glassing. Uh, one of the other technologies that we might want to mention that a lot of hunters aren't familiar with that you're seeing more and more is thermoelectric generators. And what that is, is it's a device where it changes heat into electrical energy. So, you know, if you're up on the mountain for a week, um, you know, a lot of folks are gonna have a campfire at night or, or some other heat source to cook their food and do things like that. There are actually devices that you can place in a fire and it will cause an electrical signal to come out and charge your device. 
And kind of like the air gun was to the Native Americans um, during the Lewis and Clark era, um, when you lay a piece of metal in a campfire with an electrical cord attached to it and you plug it into your phone and it charges your phone, it freaks people out. They do not understand that technology. Yeah, I can see that. I didn't even know that was possible. Well, that's one cool thing, Jay. Your readers could probably make some money off their friends. Uh, go get you a thermoelectric generator device and bet your buddy that you can charge your phone with a campfire. He's going to say his favorite expletive and take the bet, and you're going to take his money. <laughs> Do you have one yet? Um, we have several different ones we've used. Um, some of them are built into your pot, so you can use it on any different heat source. There are others that are built into the type of stove. Um, one of the first commercially available stoves that had this type of technology um, is a wood-fired stove called BioLite. And I think a lot of people are familiar with the BioLite stoves, but they have little LED lights you can add to them and different things like that. It's a pretty cool technology. And for a gearhead, you know, you get online and you start searching it and look in the forums. There's good reviews on the different devices, and, and you can pick one that meets your individual needs. That's pretty cool. Let's take a quick break right here. Have you guys heard about PhoneScope? PhoneScope is a privately held company that makes custom-molded, precisely engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. Take digiscoping photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. PhoneScope stands behind their product with a 100% money-back guarantee. PhoneScope is the future of digiscoping. Get yours now. Use the JSCOT16 promo code and receive 10% discount on all purchases. Check them out at Phonescope, that's P-H-O-N-E-S-K-O-P-E dot com, or on Instagram, at Phonescope. Wilderness Athlete is committed to improving the health and quality of life for the outdoor athlete by providing field-tested, scientifically validated nutrition and sports performance products. Check them out at wildernessathlete.com and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any order. All right, Russ, um, that's some pretty good stuff there and some great information for the listeners to dive into and see what works best for them. And I would encourage the listeners out there, if you're listening to this podcast and you have found what you think is some of the best uh, technology out there, some of the best mapping programs, uh, the, the best, uh, you know, solar chargers, et cetera, send me an email um, so I can uh, be up on it and um, pass it along to the other listeners. And um, Russ, I want to, uh, unless you have something more to add there, I kind of wanted to shift a little bit of focus of our conversation to another topic. That's some great information there. One of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, I was talking to uh, my friend Giannis uh, Patelis, who's the producer of the Meat Eater TV show, this morning as I was um, hiking, uh, he, I got a call from him. They had been on a, a bear hunt in Montana where they were looking for black bears but only saw grizzly bears. And um, he said that he was listening to something on NPR radio and it was basically the gist of it was that and I'm just curious, this is kind of just off the topic, but an opinion that you can train yourself through hard work and grit to be 
anything you want to be and that natural talent isn't necessarily the you know like there's there's people that are naturals at what they do like steven ranella is just a natural he's a great tv host great podcast host just has a perfect personality has the you know just the everything you know it's natural talent in my opinion and we kind of went back and forth as to what we thought and i was curious when it comes to hunting or comes to anything in life how much how much of people's success do you think is natural ability natural talent and how much of it is something where you can just basically study your way and learn your way into being good at what you do? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, my philosophy has always been, there's people that are naturally good at things and, and it's going to come easy for them. And there's probably many reasons why that is. Um, some of it's probably genetic. Some of it might be upbringing or environment or things like that. But there's other people that excel through like you're saying just grit and hard work and determination and a ton of effort and it's interesting for some people that it comes easy to take it for granted i think there's times where someone with grit and determination can maybe outpace them um, with a lot of hard work blood sweat and tears what i see in the hunting community is there's uh there's many different kinds of hunters out there you know, there's intense hunters that are, are super physically fit and athletic and, you know, hiking the biggest mountains out there. And, and they're just, you know, a stereotypical perfect specimen of, of a hunter. Um, but then there's some other hunters that maybe approach it differently. Um, they're a perfect specimen, but probably not a perfect specimen of a mountain uh, goat. You know, they're uh, maybe the perfect specimen of a couch potato or something like that. <laughs> Um, I know on the buffalo hunts, we get hunters like, I can do 20 miles a day and no problem. And you take them into that environment where it's a mental challenge and they suffer and they struggle. And you take another hunter. Um, I've had a couple, they're just really easygoing, funny people. And they're like, I, uh, I may not be able to run up the mountain, but I can sit here all day. And it's interesting to watch how, um, someone that's determined and mentally prepared can outpace somebody that's uh, maybe in better physical condition. I've always felt like you do what you can to be in the best shape you can be in um, and you work as hard as you can, but I'm of the opinion, do whatever it takes to be successful. And if that means changing my tactics to be successful in this situation, I'm willing to do that. Yeah, I think certainly being well-rounded and having the ability to adapt is, is a huge part of of being successful as a hunter. Um, and, and I think playing to your strengths also is is uh, something that uh, people need to not forget is, you know, don't necessarily try and, uh, well, play to your strengths. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, but I also think you can get better at your weaknesses if you acknowledge your weaknesses. And I think there's times when all of us don't want to acknowledge our weaknesses, but the second that you do and that, you know, you can focus on that on the off season and, and, and get better at those things. Um, I think it makes everybody all the better. Um, I hate to keep shifting focus in this interview, but I got a lot of questions, different things on my mind. One of them is, you know, this thing, 
this thing that happened in Orlando and, you know, radical Islamic terrorists and ISIS and, uh, you know, with the election year and all the talk about the election and, and what have you, um, you know, there's no doubt in my mind uh, that our gun rights as gun owners um, and the Second Amendment are every day we're facing attack. And I just, you know, taking politics out of it, it blows my mind how things like this happen and immediately, you know, the talking heads of you know, the Democratic Party, and I'm just going to say it, they immediately come and say, well, we need to get assault weapons off the street. We need to, you know, and they call them assault weapons. Now they're calling them military type weapons. Um, you know, and they're basically just talking about a semi-automatic gun, which is, you know, a lot of hunting rifles, a lot of, you know, hunting shotguns are semi-automatics. And, I was curious to get your take, one, on Second Amendment history and what you think about, over the years, our gun rights deteriorating and, you know, people out there that are listening that are either on the fence and, you know, there's a lot of issues on either side, Republican and Democrat, but one thing that I see very, very clearly is if the Democrats as a general platform are trying to take away gun rights, it's obvious. I mean, Hillary Clinton says it every single day. You can't go and listen a single day without her talking about wanting to take gun rights away. And she'll come and say, oh, well, we're not talking about hunting rifles. Well, I got to be honest, as a lifetime member of the NRA, this all this stuff is very bothersome to me. And I believe that the Second Amendment was created for some of the very things that we're seeing happen in the fact that people need to be able to protect themselves. And it was created so that the government would not, and maybe you can help me, uh, educate me. It, in my mind, it was created so that the government wouldn't get so big and so powerful like it was in England where they could come and just tell the people whatever they want them to do. They can raise taxes to whatever and, and uh, you know, suppress them by, uh, you know, what's your thoughts on that? Well, Jay, it's a, it's a controversial subject. And, you know, I believe that the majority of your listeners are going to be like-minded and think the way that you do. And, and I do as well. Unfortunately, the world that we live in today is messed up. And I think back to um, when I was a young man um, and my grandparents, um, and, and I will circle back around to the Second Amendment, but I want to maybe drag the conversation there in a minute, if you'll let me, to give me some latitude. Sure. Yeah. My grandmother once ran out of gasoline because she refused to pay 20 cents a gallon for gas. She was a stubborn individual. She was not going to pay 20 cents a gallon for gas. So she ran out of gas and she walked to a gas station and got gas and brought it back to her car and uh, put gas in it and then drove to the next gas station. She had the grit and stick to itness that you're talking about. And when you talk about 
um, skills in hunting and things like that. Um, that generation, um, they had grandparents and family members or they themselves were raised in a depression. They had to work and scrap and fight for things in a way that um, a lot of youth today can't even begin to appreciate. Um, I can honestly say my childhood wasn't that way, but I was raised and knew people that had been through that. So we've become soft and we've become removed from an agrarian or rural society. Most people in cities are so far removed from the cycle of life that they really don't understand it. And that's where these differences start to come in. It's a fundamental, basic difference. If you're in a crowd of people and someone starts shooting at you, Jay, your response is to defend yourself. Um, but there are other people in the crowd that their response is to get an authority to save them. And to me, that's the fundamental problem is we, as like-minded individuals, view our rights that are spelled out clearly in the Constitution as that right. And we all know that it's there to protect us from the government. It's there to protect our property from any danger, no matter where it comes from. Um, but in the world that we live in today, there's people that want to try to take that away from us. And they're going to chip away at those edges and claw at the foundations and go around and try to, you know, twist and turn the truth into fit their needs. And it's evil and it's wrong. And we should fight for it wherever we can stand up against it. Um, there, you know, there's those famous quotes that uh, evil persists or prevails when good men do nothing. So as like-minded individuals, it's our responsibility to vote appropriately and to fight for our rights and donate to causes that think the way that we do and to educate others. You know, unfortunately, I think on both sides of the issue, there's people that break down into name calling and throwing things and other bad behaviors, and that doesn't help anyone. We need to come to some common ground. I think everyone can agree that the event that happens, no matter where it happens at a school or anywhere else, is wrong. It's evil and it's tragic. The problem is, what's the solution? And how do you stop something like that? Well, different people are going to approach that differently. We should let other people believe what they believe and respect their beliefs, but we should aggressively fight and defend our beliefs and our rights. And beyond that, we're not going to change the other side's perspective. They are what they are. And I think they're so far over there that we're never going to drag them back to middle ground. I don't know what the solution is, but I do know that we work like it depends on us and we pray like it depends on the Lord. And hopefully this is going to work out well for everyone. That's pretty well said. Um, it's hard for me. I'm kind of old school. Um, it's it's hard for me to watch and see what's going on. It seems like every day our society is, you know, uh, just going downhill every single day. I mean, I'm here in Colorado in the summer and, you know, you cannot go, you can't drive a mile without in a town without seeing a pot shop on a, on a street corner. I mean, did you know here in the state of Colorado, I can literally walk in there's probably 10 different dispensaries this is a whole nother issue but right here just walk in 
buy whatever I want. And, you know, as far as, you know, dope, whether it's candy, whether it's, you know, smoking it, whether it's, you know, in a brownie and a cookie or whatever. And, you know, it just seems like we've come so far. Um, and, and, you know, the, you know, whether you agree with marijuana smoking, whether medically or, uh, you know, just uh, recreational use, um, it just seems like we we're, we're falling off the deep end in, in every, you know, it, it will not surprise me in another couple of years if every state in the United States, you know, if marijuana is 100% completely legal across the board, uh, you know, you walk in, you can just buy what you want and go, you know, smoke out. And it's just, it's crazy to me how far we've come. And then I see things like, uh, some of this rioting, um, you know, what happened to disagreeing with other people and doing a, you know, peaceful protest and you can state your opinion and jump up and down all you want, but, you know, some of this looting and jumping on cars and, you know, throwing eggs at people's face and, you know, hitting people in the back of the head with a bag of rocks and, you know, throwing things at cops. Um, you know, it, it's, it's alarming to me, you know, uh, my wife and I don't have kids. And honestly, I, I wake up every day and I'm a- actually, I'm ha- actually happy we don't have kids because it seems like it, you know, our society the moral integrity of our society every single day is getting worse and worse and worse. And, you know, it's not like I shouldn't know. I mean, it speaks clearly about it in the Bible that all these things are going to happen. So it's, you know, it's just, um, it's just hard for me to see it happening. And I feel like our country has gotten soft. I feel like our people have gotten soft and I feel like our people have kind of forgotten about all of the hardships that, our founding fathers went through to design things the way they did. And there's there's so many people, you know, and I'm kind of on a soapbox here, but I've seen on several shows, uh, Jimmy Kimmel and some of these different shows where they go into just a crowd of people and they start asking these young people questions about history. They don't even know what the civil war is. They don't even know who fought in the revolutionary war. They don't even know what side was Axis powers and Allied powers. They don't know. Uh, they can't even tell what day Pearl Harbor was bombed. They don't even know when D-Day was. Yeah. You know, to me, that is unacceptable. And, it, you know, it, it, I, I have no idea what this has to do with hunting, but I, it, just, it just caught me today on, you know, on a day where it, you know, go ahead and just let it out, I guess. <laughs> well, Jay, I appreciate your honesty. Um, so my response to that is, you know, I agree with many of the things you said, and it is unfortunate. It is tragic. It is unacceptable, but it's happening. And to deny it, you know, it's, it's happening all around us. And I won't get into the specific, you know, decadent behaviors in our society, but there's, there's plenty of them all around all of us. If you think back um, in history, and if you've taken much history, most societies are established through, you know, struggle and pain. And then they go through a period of, you know, great growth and prosperity. And then they reach a plateau. And when they reach that plateau, um, they tend to forget what got them there. 
and their riotous living and the decay of their morals and other things. And all great societies have done it. The Greeks, the Romans. I mean, you look back in history, the Egyptians, they go through these prosperous periods and then they lose sight of the fundamental basics that get you there. And then they collapse. And I'm not going to make any dire predictions about when or how or what's going to happen to the U.S., but it is alarming. The one thing I can tell you is this. It's like a river. It's like an elephant. You cannot eat an elephant in one bite. And so we can't push a magic button or say something or do something today that's going to turn around that overnight. You know, these things happen not from one decision or one act. There are billions of acts that all add up together to get you to here. Now, I don't know about the rest of the planet, but I can definitively tell you this. I will make the decisions today that make Russ Jacoby and his family a contributing member of society. I will raise my children so that I can be proud of what they contribute to society in the future. And the decision to have children or not have children is a personal one. And there's some people that can and some people that can't have children. And I'm not going to pry into those. We chose to have children. And I do everything I can to assure that my children are taught to be contributing members of society that aren't antisocial, that are going to do good things. I worry about my kids. I worry about the future. You'd be crazy not to. But I can't change that. What I can do is control my behavior and my actions and try to influence as many people for good as I can. And that's what I would encourage all your listeners to do. Make good decisions yourself and take a kid hunting or fishing. If you don't have your own, take someone else's kid hunting or fishing. Take that coworker at work that's maybe on the fence and explain to him your perspective and your views. Is that going to uh, change the tide of an election? Well, if one person does it, no. If every one of your listeners does it, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great point there, Russ. Um, awesome point. Uh, I know your time is valuable today. I've got one more question for you. Uh, I don't know if you knew, but I drew the uh, beaver unit uh, for elk in Utah. I was the uh, only non-resident. There's six other residents that have tags for that archery elk hunt. And I'm excited because I'm back shooting my bow again. And uh, actually, my friend Brian Rimza um, has let me borrow one of his new bows Um and I've been shooting it as well, um, trying to figure out which one that I want to shoot for the hunt. And it's, you know, I haven't shot archery. The last bull elk that I killed was in 2006. And um, so I'm excited to get back out there. And, you know, guiding people is, is, is a whole level of fun, but also having a tag where I'm going to get to pull the trigger and, and uh, going to get to hunt uh, for myself is a whole nother level of excitement. And, um, I know you're big into archery and I was wondering if you could, uh, I I'm kind of on the fence. I've always shot fixed, um, blade broadheads and I've been listening to a guy named John Dudley. He shoots for Hoyt and he's an archery instructor and he's got knock on TV. I've been listening to his podcast and he's been talking about expandable broadheads and he makes some pretty valid points, um, for one, expandable broadheads have come a long ways in their technology from back in 06, the last when I had a choice to shoot, you know, shoot an elk myself. Um, 
you know, I went with a fixed blade. Uh, there were some expandables, but they, you know, they, they just weren't the quality that they are now. His point is most people uh, can shoot expandable broadheads much better and the arrow will fly much better with an expandable broadhead um, as, as opposed to a fixed blade. And he said he would rather see someone that, you know, uh, you know, is practicing and what have you shoot a good expandable broadhead, um, as opposed to a fixed blade. Um, and I've always, all the elk I've ever shot have been with a fixed blade. I'm curious what your take is on expandables for elk. And if you had any experience where you could weigh in on that topic. Jay, you didn't shy away from the controversial topics today with me, did you? <laughs> I'm just uh, throwing you out there to the wolves. That's all right. I've got thick skin. Um, so broadheads. Well, to me, we'll, we'll answer the broadhead question from my perspective, but we'll also uh, expand it out to just archery equipment in general, because that's really what your question's about is like, you know, which setup should I use and, you know, which brand and all this other thing. You know, and, and, and I want to make a point before you go into that, and I didn't really set that up very good, that you are a dyed-in-the-wool archery hunter. Um, you're up to date on all the, the new bows, new technologies, all the new stuff, and you, you're, you're, you, know, you used to work in an archery shop, tune bows, and the whole thing. So you, you have a very extensive background in archery. Thanks, Jay. You know, today I didn't brand plug anybody. You know, when we talked about different topics, um, GPSs or software, different things, I, you know, there's lots of good stuff out there. Um, and the same is true of the bows. Not only broadheads, but bows have come a long way. Arrows have come a long way. All the accessories like arrow rests and quivers have come a long way um, from when I was a teenager. You know, uh, it's amazing the advances that have been made and, and it makes for a better quality experience. It makes us more lethal hunters and that's good stuff. Broadheads. Um, there's not necessarily a wrong choice in a broadhead. Um, now, there can be a wrong choice. Now, what do I mean by that? <clears throat> if you're shooting a turkey, what you're asking your arrow to do is much, much different than if you're shooting a bison. If you're shooting an antelope, what you're asking your arrow to do is a much, much different experience than if you're shooting an elk. So what I try to encourage people to do it's to match their tackle, match their archery tackle to their quarry. If you know you're hunting thick country and you're going to have relatively close shots, what you look for in your setup is much different than if you're hunting antelope in wide open country with maybe a little bit longer shot opportunities. Now, we're not going to go down the path of how far is an ethical shot. That's not where we're going here. As a guide, as an outfitter, I would rather see my hunter confident and capable in their setup and able to put that arrow where it needs to be, no matter the brand of the arrow or the brand of the bow or the type of broadhead. That's the most important thing. They've got to be comfortable and confident with their setup. If they're pulling too much poundage, if their draw length isn't right, and if their equipment's not set up properly, to me, that's the biggest problem. Now, for someone like you that has a lot of uh, op options, um, I personally prefer for me to shoot a fixed blade broadhead on a big tough animal but i agree that it needs to fly properly if you can't get that arrow to fly properly you got no business in the field but for me on a big tough animal um i prefer 
classic traditional equipment. That's why I hunt with a bow. It's traditional. And if I put that arrow where it belongs, it's going to do its job and I know what I'm going to get. You'll notice I didn't say you shouldn't use a fixed blade. I said I personally choose to use a fixed blade. Um, would I take a hunter hunting with a mechanical broadhead for elk? Absolutely. Um, if that hunter has done his job of making sure their setup is proper and that it's working well for them and they feel comfortable and confident with them and they're able to put that arrow where it needs to be, they can be successful with that. I think it's more important to match your tackle to your quarry and to feel confident with your setup and be able to perform in the field than to fight and quarrel about brands and types. And that doesn't benefit anyone. It's divisive. And we have enough divisive fighting in this world. We don't need more. And that, that's the advice I would give. Get a setup that you feel comfortable with. You probably don't want a four-inch wide broadhead for an elk, but it might be really good for a turkey. Um, so you probably want to use your brain and pick something that's appropriate for what you're pursuing. So a reasonable cutting diameter um, and reasonable conditions are going to make you a more successful bow hunter than these extremes that some people practice. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that's a good answer. I, I think um, I've always shot a fixed broadhead. Um, I've, I've never shot animals with an expandable. Um, but I, I hear that the technology has come a long ways. I hear that they now have, you know, cutting, you know, the, the cutting tips. Um, you know, the last elk I shot was with actually a two blade muzzy phantom and the penetration on those broadheads were, were phenomenal. I've actually shot several elk with that exact broadhead, you know, and then there's people out there that definitely say, shoot the three blade. Um, you know, the, the one thing with the two blade is I got it flew great and it got incredible penetration. It didn't leave a very big hole. So my blood trails weren't that big where, whereas I'm hearing guys shooting, you know, like the rage hypodermic or like the uh, grave digger, um, you know, the, 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 the grave digger, uh, expandable with the cutting tip, um, and, and talking about big blood trails, um, cause they're getting a big entrance hole. You know, so I I was just curious what you thought. You st you say still stick with the fixed blade if you can get your arrows flying good. Um, stick with the fixed blade. I mean, the likelihood of me shooting much over forty yards um, is is probably unlikely. Um, I'm usually kind of a close combat, you know, call them in type of hunter. And um, so with that close shot, you still say stick with a fixed broadhead, fixed blade broadhead. I, I really like fixed blade because I know what I'm going to get and I know how they're going to perform. And if you can get it to fly good, no one said that, uh, that they're bad. You know, people have said most hunters, and I think that's true. A lot of hunters don't put the time in to make their setup proper. And if they're going to go to the store, grab them a screw and a line and go hunting, um, that's bad. That in and of itself is bad, no matter what kind of broadhead you're using. You need to test your setup and make sure it's going to write work properly. But if, if, I, we have had good success with some of the newer mechanical broadheads. But if you look at them, they're not a, quote, true traditional um, mechanical broadhead. They're a hybrid. A lot of them have cut-on contact tips of different sizes. Um, some of the ones you mentioned there, it's basically a fixed-blade broadhead that also has mechanical attributes to it. And I think you get some of the best of both worlds. You get that cut-on impact tip 
that you know how it's going to perform and you get that cutting benefit but then you also can get some of these bigger holes that a lot of hunters like um i have seen elk shot with fixed blade and get away and i've seen elk shot with a mechanical and get away it's not the broadhead it's what you shot do with, placement it's what yeah. you do with that broadhead and we have had hunters use mechanical broadheads on buffalo and some large ones and they've had some good results um but like I said, I'm a traditional guy. We're using traditional tackle. And, you know, I use all the advances in, you know, computers and software and satellites and all this other stuff. So how does that fit with me as being this traditional guy? Well, when is advances enough? And where do we cut that off? Um, now, the type of broadhead that a person chooses to use is a very personal decision. Pick one that you feel confident with and it's appropriate for the query you're going to pursue and then don't worry about it and uh, don't get so stuck in your ways. You're not willing to try a new thing. Um, tags are hard to come by, but when you get one, make sure it's a quality experience for you. Um, for me, that's a traditional type broadhead. Um, that's one place that I'm just very traditional. But, Do you like a three blade? Um, I actually shoot a two blade. And the reason I do that is um, I follow Dr. Ed Ashby. And if you Google him and look at some of the stuff that he's done, he shoots um, a lot in Africa and they're looking at recovery rates on African game. And um, as hunters, we should be embarrassed by some of our recovery rates. I, I know here where I live in Arizona in Flagstaff, if you look at this, the, uh, the wounding loss rate for elk, it's unacceptable to me. It's atrocious how many elk get lost. And it's not the broadhead that's the problem. It's the hunter. And and we should be embarrassed by that. And we should do something about it. I do what I can to try to educate my fellow hunters and try to help people improve their But I, it worries me when I see those type of behaviors. So thinking that you can go to the store and swipe your credit card and purchase a solution um, for your elk hunt isn't really the right approach. You need to get your equipment, you need to test it, you need to try it, you need to make sure it's gonna work. You owe that to the animal to, to make a clean ethical kill. If you're not gonna do that, you shouldn't be archery hunting. So there are some really good mechanical broadhead designs on the market, and I would not be afraid to use some of those. But for me, it's a very traditional personal choice to use archery tackle and to use a, a very traditional style broadhead. Now. I'm shooting a compound, yes, um, but I prefer a traditional two-blade broadhead, and it's just one place that I'm I'm holding to tradition there. I like it. That's why I asked you. That's uh, that's good. I it I may uh, I think I'm gonna get um, some expandables. I think I'm gonna get some of the new fixed-blade broadheads. I think I'm gonna get some of the old two two-blade broadheads that I'm that I'm used to, and um, gonna do some shooting. I've got all summer and got a really nice range uh, right here pretty close um, to where I'm at this summer and uh, gonna see what flies best and see what I'm most comfortable with but uh, I appreciate uh, all your insight I uh, appreciate you spending time with us um, today on this podcast I know we covered a lot of different subjects and uh, uh, just appreciate your friendship and uh, you bring great value to uh, to just knowing you brings great value um, to our to just everything I do, I love to run things by you. So I'm glad the listeners can also hear uh, you give share some of your experiences. So Jay, um, 
I appreciate the time you've taken with me today. Um, last time um, we had ended and then we stayed for a few minutes longer. So um, you gave me an assignment. You're like, hey, Russ, people love the air gun thing. You got to come up with another story. You got to come up with another one for me. So I've been racking my brain trying to come up with another experience like that. And I'll share something with you. If you want to include it, you can, or, or you can edit it out, okay? Love it. Okay. So um, what I was thinking about is uh, what was it about air rifles that made that such a cool story? And I think a lot of it was um, that people didn't know about it, but it was also a relatively advanced technology, but also very primitive. And it was a unique combination of uh, – characteristics that made it so popular with people and you know there aren't a lot of ways that you can really talk about something like that but i, I am going to attempt to do that and what i chose to talk about for that subject is going to be slingshots now as soon as i say the word slingshot i think it arouses many different emotions and many different people um, i think some people are going to probably think of dennis the menace and the trouble you can get to in a young man with a slingshot um, <laughs> I know that uh, I have many fond memories of trouble that I got into with a slingshot. <laughs> Neighbors' windows and such. <laughs> I don't think I broke any windows, but I definitely did get into trouble as a young man with a slingshot. Uh, to me, a BB gun and a slingshot, those are all rites of passages for a young person, and uh, especially as an outdoor hunter and enthusiast. So when I was a kid, we had slingshots, and we shot rocks, and we shot steel balls and lead balls. And, you know, honestly, I don't think I was very proficient with one, but I sure had fun with one. And that's why we do this is to have fun. Well, there has been a resurgence of, of our youth in, in our community. Um, you see, if you'll go on Google and Google things like slingshots, there's actually YouTube channels devoted to nothing but slingshots. And wh why do we bring a topic like that up? Well, in our high-powered world of, uh, you know, difficult to draw tags and trying to kill 400-inch bulls and, and draw sheep tags and these kind of things, I think we sometimes lose sight of the basics of hunting. And to me, there's very little more basic than a slingshot. So I would invite your listeners to spend a little bit of time on Google and, and learn a little bit about slingshots. Um, just like people are blown away with what you could do with an air rifle in 1820, I think people would be blown away if they go onto YouTube and they look at some of the shots being made with a slingshot. Uh, when I was a young man, I had the perspective that if I practiced enough, I'd eventually get good with a slingshot. And um, I think that's probably true. But the amount of time it takes to devote most people are going to give up long before they ever become a master. And, and this ties back into your original comments about natural ability and grit and determination. I think there's some people that can pick up a slingshot and never miss day one just from natural ability. And there's other people, if they practice every day for 50 years, they eventually would become proficient. Um, but it turns out that uh, most people that shoot a slingshot, they just kind of shoot it instinctively. You don't really aim it. Um, and if the analogy there would be uh, a traditional archery tackle or a compound bow, most people that shoot traditional archery tackle don't have sight pins. They just do traditional, uh, an instinctive type style shooting. And if you practice, you can be proficient. 
but if you get a compound bow with sights, most people can become proficient very quickly. And the same thing is true with a slingshot. It turns out that a slingshot doesn't really have sights per se, but if you hold it a certain way and you use the fork of the slingshot to aim, you can actually become very proficient very quickly with a slingshot. So kind of a project that my son Jacob and I took on is we went online and found our favorite vendor for slingshots and we ordered a couple slingshots. And I think I spent around a hundred bucks. We both got some pretty nice slingshots and some different bands and ammo and, you know, these kinds of things. Um, and then we brought them home and much to my wife's dismay, we set up <laughs> a, uh, a trap in the kitchen. So we have a safety backstop and a little target. We can shoot about 10 yards in our kitchen. Now your wife may not let you do that, but mine does. And, uh, <laughs> When it's snowing outside in Flagstaff, we take our slingshots in the kitchen and we and we shoot uh, dime-sized uh, little targets at 10 yards. And we've become pretty proficient with it. And it's been a lot of fun. So we take our slingshots with us now when we go out in the field. Now, when we're on a sheep hunt or a deer hunt or, or some other, you know, trophy-style hunt, there are times where you need to be quiet and you need to sit still and, and do what you're doing. But on all of those hunts, we can usually eke out a few minutes sometime in the day where we can take our, our slingshots and have some fun with them. And that's what little gem I'll try to leave with your listeners for today is uh, remember when you were a kid and remember how much fun you had in the field. If you've lost some of that, buy yourself a slingshot. Take a kid with you and go out and try to harvest something in season, um, maybe a rabbit or a squirrel or when the time comes, you know, some of those grouse on the kaibab or something like that with a slingshot. Um, a neighbor's cat. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. <laughs> um, you'll be amazed what you can do with a slingshot if you go about it the right way and you'll have some fun again. And that's what this is really all about. On YouTube, there are some guys on there that are shooting at soda cans at a hundred yards with a slingshot. They'll shoot at it 10 times and they're hitting it more than they're missing it at a hundred yards. Um, some of these guys are lighting matches with a slingshot at 20 yards and almost every shot. And it's amazing what you can do with this, with a, uh, a slingshot. If you just learn a little bit from some of the experts, it doesn't take that big of a time commitment to be pretty proficient with one. So that's the gem that I'll leave with you today. I love it. Russ Jacoby, there you go. Always bringing something special to the podcast. I'm going to have to start uh, YouTube and Google and slingshots now that you said that. Well, Jay, um, be safe up there. Um, I appreciate your time today. Um, you know, as divisive as our country is, I'll, I'll try to end with uh, pray for our country because we desperately need it and uh, vote uh, in a way that's going to help all of us. Do a good job raising your kids and help your neighbors. You know, be a good person and uh, the good people outnumber the bad. Um, as much bad as there is in the world today, the good still outnumber the bad and focus on the good. Awesome. Those are great words of wisdom there. I appreciate you saying it and uh, thanks for your time. Uh, Russ Jacoby, Mossback, Arizona. Russ, how can people get a hold of you if they, if they want to go on a hunt? So I'll leave my phone number and my email. My phone number is area code 928-814-9622. 
and it's coyote, C-O-Y-O-T-E, rustler, R-U-S-T-L-E-R, at gmail.com. Awesome, buddy. Well, God bless you. Uh, tell the family hello. I know your daughter's uh, off in Montana on her uh, mission, and I know you miss her dearly. Um, but I guarantee you that she's doing a fantastic job where she's at because I know her and she's an awesome person. And, um, yeah, look forward to seeing you uh, this fall sometime down the road. So um, I'll be chatting at you. And, uh, yeah, take care. Okay, buddy? Thanks, Jay. And good luck on your elk hunt.